Persuasion by Jane Austen, Volume 2, Chapter 11. Previously on Persuasion, we are getting so close to the end. So, in Persuasion, we have Anne Elliot, whose family is awful, got engaged to Captain Wentworth eight years ago, but then was convinced by her friend Lady Russell not to marry him and to break off the engagement. She meets him again now in the present, eight years later. She's still in love with him, um, but he seems to be in love with somebody else. It's a whole thing for quite some time. And then she comes to Bath and he follows her there. And it turns out that he was not in love with that other woman, or at least he's not marrying her because she's married to some, she's engaged now to somebody else. But now they're in Bath and it's, we're getting a love triangle now between he thinks Captain Wentworth thinks that now Anne is maybe going to marry her cousin, Mr. Elliot. And it's a whole thing. And then we get a bunch of information from Mrs. Smith, who is Anne's old school friend from when she was in school in Bath years ago as a child. And she learns all sorts of things about, Mr. Elliot being not who he claims to be, being very kind of two-faced to the family. It's very shocking to Anne um, and cements her bad opinion of him. Then the Musgroves arrive in Bath. Those are her in-laws. And this is, I think, a plot device to make sure that she's able to see Captain Wentworth again because that he's friends with the Musgroves. So that's a way for her to socially see him because she wouldn't be able to, you know, just call or write to him on his own. They would need to meet up somehow in a group situation, which now that the Musgroves are in, in Bath allows that to happen. And that's where we've ended up. The Musgroves are here. She's got another chance. And we've only got two chapters left. So here we go into chapter 11, which I'm going to warn you right now is a long one. <laughs> All right, everybody, getting into chapter 11. This one is a doozy. We are closing up a lot of things. So this is the penultimate chapter. There's chapter 11 and there's chapter 12, and that's the end of the book. So this seems to close up a lot, and it kind of followed what I was expecting to happen based on other novels where the romance kind of between the two main characters is sort of wrapped up here. And what I mean by that is that we have figured out that they love each other. This chapter, we're going to get to it, but this is where we wrap up sort of that love story between the two of them. And they both agree that they're going to get married. And so I assume chapter 12, which looks like it's a relatively short chapter, is going to be some sort of just sort of the way that the last chapter in Pride and Prejudice and some of the other novels is is sort of a wrap up of like where are they now and sort of thing of how this uh, kind of an epilogue <clears throat> chapter um, because I think the actual real story between everybody is getting wrapped up here in chapter 11 but let's get into it so this is happening the day after the big old revelation conversation with Mrs. Smith, where she found out all this stuff about Mr. Elliot and his connection with Mrs. Smith and how he was, you know, a liar and not being himself and how he had hurt Mrs. Smith with not helping her um, 
when he was supposed to be like the executor of her late husband's will and refusing to do anything to help her, even though they'd been good friends for so long. Um, and her sort of blaming him for her, for Mrs. Smith's current poverty and everything. Um, but so she came out of that feeling very horrible about Mr. Elliot and this whole situation and feeling she has to tell Lady Russell, but then didn't get to tell Lady Russell. Um, and then, but this one starts out with, the chapter starts with, one day only had passed since Anne's conversation with Mrs. Smith, but a keener interest had succeeded, and she was now so little touched by Mr. Elliot's conduct, except by its effects in one quarter, that it became a matter of course the next morning, still to defer her explanatory visit to River Street, which would be to Lady Russell. Um, so she is much more, I'm reading this to be like, yes, she was had all this information about Mr. Elliot and it was this huge thing and she felt a lot about it but it is nowhere near as important as the situation with Captain Wentworth and now that she has a way to like try and go see him which is what she's going to go do by going to see the Musgroves and hoping that that'll somehow like get her to see Captain Wentworth that is way more important than any of this gossip about Mr. Elliot's in her opinion which I would tend to agree with so she's supposed to be going over to see the Musgroves but she can't go as early as she's supposed to because it's raining so she has to wait till the rain's over but as soon as the rain ends she heads over there and where who she finds there are mrs musgrove talking to mrs croft and then captain harville and captain wentworth which captain wentworth is the reason that she was so excited to go see them all i think so that is probably a very good thing for her um and she finds out that Mary and Henrietta had already left to go shopping, but they were coming back very soon and that they had, you know, left a message with Mrs. Musgrove to keep Anne there waiting for them when they came back. Because the whole plan was that Anne was going to go shopping with them for all the, you know, engagement marriage stuff, which is why they'd all come to Bath in the first place. So she's waiting and Anne is sitting there and she was deep in the happiness of such misery or the misery of such happiness instantly. Um, again, I'm taking this to mean like just being in the presence of Captain Wentworth is giving her, she's so happy and miserable at the same time, just being around him, but not being able to really talk to him and not being able to figure out what, you know, really get into what is going on with him and like get into this deep conversation she wants to have. So it's both happiness and misery and she's feeling it both very much. Then um, Wentworth, Captain Wentworth is going to go write the letter, write a letter to, for Harville, to Bennick about something. We're not really sure yet. Um, he just says, we will write the letter we were talking of, Harville, now, if you will give me the materials. So he's going to go over, do that. He goes to another table and starts writing. Then Anne is there just kind of listening to Mrs. Musgrove and Mrs. Croft talk. But really what that means is Mrs. Musgrove is kind of lecturing at Mrs. Croft. She's giving her the history of her eldest daughter's engagement. And just in that inconvenient tone of which a voice, which was perfectly audible while it pretended to be a whisper. Um, so she's just kind of listening to this and she's giving them all this information about it. And it says, I love this sentence. It says, minutia, which... Even with every advantage of taste and delicacy, which good Mrs. Musgrove could not give, 
could be properly interesting only to the principals. So she's going into all these details about this marriage and all and what's going on between Charles Hayter and her daughter. And um, it's interesting to nobody but her. And it's very clear that Mrs. Croft is not interesting. Mrs. Croft was attending with great good humor, and whenever she spoke at all, it was very sensibly. And Anne hoped the gentlemen might each be too much self-occupied to heed or to hear. Um, so Mrs. Musgrove, while a very good-natured person, is not as up in the... She's not... doesn't have the uh, delicacy or taste to have a good conversation, apparently. And she's just going on and on and on about things that nobody else cares about. Um, and so they go on and on and think about that. But then they get to a part where actually interests Anne a little bit more. When they get out of, like, the details of the actual engagement... They start to kind of debate this idea of a long engagement or a short engagement. And so Mrs. Musgrove says, at any rate, said I, it will be better than a long engagement. So she's talking about how they don't quite have enough money to live on. It's not maybe the best situation, but they felt like they needed to go on because it it would be better than them having a long engagement that they, you know, get together and... Said, I would rather have young people settle on a small income at once and have to struggle with a few difficulties together than be involved in a long engagement. I always think that no mutual. Oh, dear Mrs. Croft, cried Mrs. Musgrove, unable to let her finish her speech. There's nothing so I, I so abominate for young people as a long engagement. Um, so they're both agreeing that a long engagement is horrible. Um, and then they also agree that Mrs. Croft comes back with, or an uncertain engagement, an engagement which may be long, to begin without knowing that at, that at such a time there will be the means for marrying. I hold it to be very unsafe and unwise, and what I think all parents should prevent as far as they can. And Anne found an unexpected interest here. She felt its application to herself, felt it in a nervous thrill all over her. And, at the same moment that her eyes instinctively glanced toward the dist distant table, Captain Wentworth's pen ceased to move. His head was raised, pausing, listening, and he turned around the next instant to give a look. One quick, conscious look at her. So, what does this idea of this long engagement have to do with her? So, I can think of two kind of ways to interpret this. I think the way that I would initially interpret it, the one that makes the most sense to me, is that Anne is thinking of the past eight years ago and how they would have had a long engagement, right? That, and it would have been, what does Mrs. Croft call it? A uncertain engagement, right? Because they wouldn't have been able, at the time that they got engaged, he wasn't a captain yet. He was waiting to become a captain, I believe. Because they talk about him getting, um, you know, a couple of years later, he got assigned to the ship and became a captain and made all this money and stuff. So... Basically, if they had gotten engaged and they were doing kind of the sensible, quote unquote, thing of the time, they wouldn't have gotten married until he made captain, until he made some money. And they had really no way of knowing exactly when that would have been. So it turns out it's like a couple years out, I think. Um, but they didn't know that then of exactly when he would make it, when he would <clears throat> get promoted, when he would make the money. They would have, it would have been just kind of an open-ended, long, long engagement. And both Mrs. Musgrove and Mrs. Croft here, here sitting saying that that is the worst thing, that they definitely should not have children do that, that parents should prevent it, 
that long engagements and uncertain engagements where they don't know when the money will be there are just the worst thing. Now, why are they the worst thing? They didn't go into the whys. They're just kind of agreeing that, yes, of course, this is a mutually understood thing that is bad. Um, my guess is the idea that um, you're maybe pining or wasting your emotions on this person. There's also, I think, probably the fear of inappropriate behavior happening prior to marriage. And then if the engagement falls through, that could, like, you know, ruin somebody's reputation or whatever. I would assume something like that could be part of it, you know, like the temptation of being too close to someone when you're not married, that it's maybe safer, quote unquote, again, to be married quickly so that, you know, kind of the same reason that a lot of very, very religious people, even nowadays, who don't believe in premarital sex are very quick to marry, you know, a lot of like, it's a famous thing I think I've heard a lot with like the Mormon community and other like more very fundamental like religious evangelical sort of groups that those people tend to in those groups tend to get married very young and very quickly um and i think a lot of it does have to do with this idea of not leading lending into temptation to make sure that you can get married quickly so you can have sex um and i think and also so that you don't have premarital sex it's to prevent that like you don't want the temptation of that sort of thing to build um, and so that's the implication I go for. I don't know if maybe there's another implication that's deeper that would make sense for that time period of why a long engagement would be bad. But I would, my interpretation of that, of why a long, long engagement is a bad thing would be that like thought, feeling of impropriety, the appearance of impropriety or the appearance or the temptation of something unacceptable physically happening. Um, the other thing that could be that's more specific to this time period is the idea that if you're engaged to someone officially and like, for example, if Anne and Captain Wentworth were engaged and then Captain Wentworth died, that maybe you'd have to you'd go into mourning for that person. It would like be, I don't know, wasting time, maybe in that sense that you're going into mourning so you can't marry somebody else. Although we just are seeing with Captain Bennick that that is not true, that he didn't wait all that long. So which comes up in a little bit here in this chapter. I don't know. But um, of why exactly they're talking about long engagements being so bad, the only thing that I, the implication that I take would be mostly about that temptation of, you know, improprieties happening prior to marriage. If, if you have a long engagement where you don't really know where the end is, when the, the end is going to be in sight and why they're talking against it. And I think from some stuff Anne says later in the chapter, I think that the implication that she's taking from it here is that you know, it applied to her former situation that it would have been a bad thing for her to have this long of an engagement. And the other interpretation I think you could take that might also be happening here would be that Anne is thinking of her hopefully future situation where she won't have a long engagement and will hopefully be able to marry Captain Wentworth very quickly. Those are the two sort of interpretations I have over what she's thinking of here and how it would, you know, apply to herself and give her a nervous thrill about her past and about her future and apparently Captain Wentworth is listening to this and looking at her and thinking about this idea of long engagements as a and attaching that to Anne as well which Anne likes um, and then so then the ladies continue to talk to re-urge the same admitted truths and enforce them with such examples of the ill effect of a contrary practice 
as had fallen within their observation, but Anne heard nothing distinctly. It was only a buzz of words in her ear. Her mind was in confusion. So Mrs. Croft and Mrs. Musgrove do go into why it's such a bad thing, but they don't, the book doesn't tell us why it would be or what their, um, what their thoughts on the situation are, like what, what their examples are. So I'm left still with my like interpretation of the propriety stuff, but I don't know for sure. In any case, then Anne goes to talk to Captain Harville. And so she stops listening to Mrs. Croft and Mrs. Musgrove's situation or conversation about engagements. And so she enjoins Captain Harville and she's sort of near the captain, the table Captain Wentworth is at writing his letter, but she's talking to Harville. And he shows her a miniature painting of Captain Bennock and he's talking about how it was done for his sister but now he has to get it like reframed and set for um, Louisa and says, I now have the charge of getting it properly set for another poor Fanny. She would not have forgotten him so soon. And so we get this idea that Captain Harville is not happy that Bennick has moved on. So if you remember when we first met Bennick in Lyme, he was, you know, sort of in mourning, the sad young man who was supposed who had been engaged to Captain Harville's sister, Fanny. And then Fanny had died while they were away. And so he had been mourning ever since. And, but then he ended up, you know, falling for Louisa apparently. And now they're engaged and it's very quick. According to Harville, he definitely seems to have thoughts that, um, that it's, you know, not good for his sister's memory that he, even though he was sad that Bennick was sad, he, f he feels like Bennick is moving on from his sister faster than maybe Harville is moving on from the fact that his sister has died and also moving on faster than he feels is appropriate. Um, and we find out that the letter that Captain Wentworth is writing is about the situation um, and so he can't really, Harville is having too much trouble, like, thinking about the fact that he's taking this portrait that was done for his sister, and it's how, and that Har he's having to, like, have it done for somebody else, so he's kind of given that commission over to Wentworth to write the letter and figure out what he, what they're going to do so that he doesn't have to, which makes sense. He's still too, like, emotionally tied to it. But then we get into this really interesting conversation that I actually really enjoyed. I think this is one of uh, a really good part of the book here about where Harville and Anne Elliot are having this discussion about whether men or women are kind of more faithful in love. Um, and so it starts off with this talking about Fanny and how he says that Fanny would not have forgotten him so soon um, and saying that it would not be in the nature of any woman who truly loved. And he starts with that. So do you claim that for your sex? And she answers, yes, we certainly do not forget you as soon as you forget us. It is perhaps our fate rather than our merit. We cannot help ourselves. We live at home, quiet, confined, and our feelings prey upon us. You are first on exertion. You have always a profession, pursuits, business of some sort or other to take you back into the world immediately and continual occupation and change soon weaken impressions. 
And they go back and forth about this. Um, and Captain Bennick is very much on the side of no men are more constant and is arguing for women. Women are more constant. Um, Harville says, I will not allow it to be more man's nature than women's to be inconstant and forget those they do love or have loved. I believe the reverse. I believe in a true analogy between our bodily frames and our mental and that as our bodies are the strongest, so are our feelings capable of bearing most rough usage and riding out the heaviest weather. And Anne comes back with, your feelings may be the strongest, but the same spirit of analogy will authorize me to assert that ours are the most tender. Men is, man is more robust than woman, but he is not longer lived, which exactly explains my view of the nature of their attachments. Nay, it would be too hard upon you if it were otherwise. She goes on and on about that a little bit. Um, and Captain Harville says, we'll never agree on this. Um, Captain Wentworth ends up during this conversation dropping his pen and like startling them a little bit but he says he's not done with his letter yet um, which is a little I think um, hairbringer of what's going to be happening um, soon so it's like showing uh, letting us know that something's going on over there with Wentworth we don't know what yet but we will find out very quickly in this chapter um, but they get back to their conversation and he says that, and Carville says, but let me observe that all histories are against you, all stories, prose and verse. I don't, do not think I ever opened a book in my life, which had not something to say upon women's inconsistency, songs and proverbs, all talk of women's fickleness, but perhaps you will say these are all written by men. Perhaps I shall. Yes. Yes, if you please. No reference to examples in books. Men have had every advantage of us in telling their own story. Education has been theirs in so much higher a degree. The pen has been in their hands. I will not allow books to prove anything. But how shall we prove anything? We never shall. We never can expect to prove anything upon such a point. It is a difference of opinion which does not admit of proof. I just think that's a really interesting way to put it. So there, So Anne's thought it really is that like well books say all that stuff yeah but they're all written by guys and men have had better you know access to education they're the ones who are usually the the um authors which is very true jane austen's time that it was still very improper for women to write which is why she was writing under kind of a pen name of a lady she wasn't in her lifetime publishing her novels as jane austen I mean, it was kind of an open secret, but it was not, you know, known and it wasn't published on her books, her name, because that would have been improper. So they agree that they can't really come to an agreement. For, well, they continue on with this conversation where Harville's saying that their that um, men's feelings are very strong and he talks about... Hit, you know, it seems to be his situation of having to leave his wife and children behind and go off on a ship and then coming back and coming to the wrong port and having to wait for them for 12 hours to come and how happy you are to see them. And um, that he's trying to explain how how strong his feelings are in these situations and so to prove that men have such strong feelings. And Anne kind of agrees with him in that point. Saying that, um, 
well, saying that I hope I do justice to all that is felt by you and by those who resemble you. God forbid that I should undervalue the warm and faithful feelings of any of my fellow creatures. I should deserve utter contempt if I dared to suppose that, one, that true attachment and constancy were known only by women. No, I believe you capable of everything great and good in your married lives. I believe you equal to every important exertion and to every domestic forbearance as long as, if I may be allowed the expression, so long as you have an object. I mean, while the woman you love lives and lives for you, all the privilege I claim for my own sex, it is not a very enviable one, you need not covet it, is that of loving longest when existence or when hope is gone. Which is a very profound thing, in my opinion. I really like that. That all the privilege I claim for my own sex is that of loving longest when existence or when hope is gone. So she's sort of making this argument that, well, yes, you have fervent attachments and you have this great love for these people in your lives. And I don't deny that. But once they're gone, once, once this is just a pointless thing where you have no chance of ever seeing them again when all hope is gone it's women who are still more likely to hold on to that love anyway and not move on whereas men are much more likely to move on and so this sort of ends the discussion in uh, captain harville ends with you are a good soul putting his hand on her arm quite affectionately there is no quarreling with you and when I think of Bennick, my tongue is tied. And so he's sort of saying that Captain Bennick does sort of prove her point, that he seemed so attached to Fanny and was so in love with her, but moved on pretty quickly once hope was gone, once she was dead and there was no chance of that relationship anymore. And then their conversation is sort of broken into because Mrs. Croft says that she's going to leave and she talks to Frederick a little bit, saying that they're all going to go to the party at Anne's house later and they'll all see each other there but Captain Wentworth is sort of wishy-washy or hesitant about saying whether or not he's going to go to the party he doesn't specifically answer that he's going to go he just sort of says that oh yes we're going to separate here and Harville and I are going to go blah 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 we'll see you, you know goodbye he doesn't answer her question of if he's going to go to the party at Anne's house So his hesitation, I think, is explained as we go on here. But right now it's just giving Anne a little bit of anxiety, saying that um, with him being sort of unclear about whether or not he's going to come to the party, that does not make Anne happy. And then Harville is very cordial as he leaves, but Wentworth is not. He just, he he had passed out of the room without a look. So again, she's very sort of unsettled by that not happy but as soon as she's like able to even think that he's rock running back into the room saying that he forgot his gloves he goes to get his gloves and while he does that says and standing with his back towards mrs musgrove he drew out a letter from under the scattered paper placed it before anne with eyes of glowing entreaty fixed on her for a moment and hastily collecting his gloves he was again out of the room almost before mrs musgrove was aware of his being in it the work of an instant so he comes in and then he he lets her know that he's like got this letter that he's slyly left for her in the room 
And just as an explanation, the reason he would do this is that it would be completely inappropriate for an unmarried, unconnected man and woman to be sending letters. He would not be allowed to send her a letter or give her a letter. That's completely inappropriate, unacceptable behavior. So he's got to do it in such a way that nobody sees it happen. Nobody knows that he wrote her a letter. And so he's done this sort of slyly to leave a letter behind in the, so that they can have sort of this conversation that would not be acceptable otherwise. Um, and so the letter says that it's in barely legible writing to a Miss A.E., which so to Miss Anne Elliot. And she starts to realize that while he, she thought he was writing a letter to Captain Bennick, he was also writing a letter to her. And maybe that's why it took so long. Um, and anything was possible. She's super excited. And then we get to this letter. So this letter has been hyped up to me like crazy. Before I even have started to read this, what I had heard about this book is that it was super romantic and had like the most romantic letter ever in this book. And here is the letter that we've been waiting for. So I'm just going to read the entire letter because it's not that long and because we have to. I have to read this letter. So here is the letter that Captain Wentworth wrote to Anne. I can listen no longer in silence. I must speak to you by such means as are within my reach. You pierce my soul. I am half agony, half hope. Tell me not that I am too late, that such precious feelings are gone forever. I offer myself to you again with a heart even more your own than when you almost broke it eight years and a half ago. Dare not say that man forgets sooner than woman, that his love has an earlier death. I have loved none but you. Unjust I may have been, weak and resentful I have been, but never inconstant. You alone have brought me to Bath, for you alone I think and plan. Have you not seen this? Can you fail to have understood my wishes? I had not waited even these ten days could I have read your feelings, as I think you must have penetrated mine. I can hardly write. I am every instant hearing something which overpowers me. You sink your voice, but I can distinguish the tones of that voice when they would be lost on others. Too good, too excellent creature. You do us injustice indeed. You do us justice indeed. You do believe that there is true attachment and constancy among men. Believe it to be most fervent, most undeviating in F.W. Frederick Wentworth. I must go, uncertain of my fate, but I shall return hither or follow your party as soon as possible. A word, a look will be enough to decide whether I enter your father's house this evening or never. <sighs> Big sigh. So that was a very good letter. I, I mean, he expressed himself very nicely. It's, it's beautiful, that whole, I've heard that line before, you pierce my soul, I am half agony, half hope. That is a beautiful line, so poetic. Um, saying that he's been there in Bath for her. And that he's just waiting for a sign from Anne to decide whether he will, at least in my reading, like reconnect to her, re-decide re that they are going to be engaged or, you know, leave her alone forever. Which is very similar to like um, <coughs> what Darcy says in Pride and Prejudice. Where he's like, but one, one word from you will silence me on this subject forever. Very similar vibe. Um, and it's gorgeous and it's beautiful and I love it. And so does Anne. She's so excited. She said such a letter was not to be soon recovered from. So she is hoping for some time alone, but does not get it. Because 
while she's like in this agitation, Charles, Mary, and Henrietta all come in. And then she says, the absolute necessity of seeming like herself produced then an immediate struggle. But after a while, she could do no more. So she can't pay attention to a thing they're saying. And so she just says that she's ill and she has to go home. And they all are very, and Mrs. Musgrove especially, is saying, oh, by all means, go home and take care of yourself. I thought it was interesting. Um, it says that Mrs. Musgrove, who thought of only one sort of illness, having assured herself with some anxiety that there had been no fall in this case, that Anne had not at any time lately slipped down and got a blow on her head, that she was perfectly convinced of having had no fall, could part with her cheerfully and depend upon finding her better at night. <laughs> so Mrs. Musgrove is just very worried that she must have fallen and hit her head or something, but as soon as she's sure that that didn't happen, all is right with Mrs. Musgrove's world and it's fine, she can go. So Anne leaves and Charles goes with her, which she also didn't want. But Charles has, you know, sees her as the sister and is very is a very good sort of man and decided that. Um, it says here that in his real concern and good nature would not would go home with her. There was no preventing him. This was almost cruel, but she could not long be ugh, she could not be long ungrateful. He was sacrificing the engagement at a gunsmith's to be of use to her. And she set off with him with no feeling but gratitude apparent. So he is doing the socially correct thing, what he should be doing to make sure that she gets home all right. But even so, she's like, but I want to be alone and I want to go look for Captain Wentworth and I don't really want to talk to you, Charles. Um, but anyway, they're heading out. And as they're walking along the street, they run into the man she actually wants to talk to, Captain Wentworth. And Charles very quickly asks where Captain Wentworth is going and... If he's able to walk Anne home on his way so that him, so that Charles can turn around and go to the gunsmith he wants to go to. Talks a little bit more about this gun and all this stuff that nobody cares about. And of course, Captain Wentworth agrees. And they soon decide that they're going to go, that Anne and Captain Wentworth are going to go talk somewhere where they can be relatively quiet and alone. And they go to the gravel walk to talk. Um... Where the power of conversation would make the present hour a blessing indeed, and prepare for it all the immor immortality which the happiest recollections of their own future lives could bestow. There they exchanged again those feelings and those promises which had once before seemed so secure ev to secure everything, but which had been followed by so many, many years of division and estrangement. And so they're engaged again. They've gotten back together, and that's I mean, it's not a huge sentence. It's not a huge thing, but that's what I take from it, that they go and they talk and they exchange again those feelings and those promises. So they have decided, they have said that they love each other again and they have said that they're going to marry each other again. They're back in, and we don't actually get that conversation, which is a big Jane Austen trope. You never actually get a successful proposal or anything like that's behind closed doors. Um, you just know that it happened. You don't actually get to see the words. Um, they then talk about the past. They're talking about what has happened with each other. Um, they, in they indulge in those retrospections and acknowledgments, and especially in those explanations of what had directly preceded the present moment, which were so poignant and so ceaseless in interest. So they're talking and talking and talking about the day-to-day -day of what's been going on. They talk about the fact that 
Anne was correct and Captain Wentworth was jealous of Mr. Elliot. And that's why he was so weird with her at the concert. Um, and that the conversation she was having with Harville is what finally gave him like the encouragement and thoughts to write the letter to her while she was talking. Which is kind of seen in the letter that he seems to sort of be replying to things she's saying. And he talks about, he says that he uh, still believes what he wrote in the letter, that he persisted in having loved none but her. She had never been supplanted. Um, he had imagined himself indifferent when he had only been angry. And only at Lyme had he begun to understand himself. So when they're finally thrust together more and like, he th- so he's saying that when they were at Uppercross, and he saw the he's there. They saw each other a bunch there. He was still just so stuck in anger he didn't really see her. But at Lyme, that's when he started to realize that no, I'm still in love with her. And he says that no, he was not in love with Louisa. Um, he even talks about that passing admiration of Mr. Elliot's when he walked by and like seemed to find Anne Hot. Um had like roused him, I guess, probably in that little jealousy that somebody else was looking at her, which honestly it's maybe not the most pleasant of emotions, in my opinion. Like, the idea that he's only interested in her because he sees another man is, too. But um, that's slightly negative to me. I don't really like how that how that's worded and how that, thing, how that looks like. Um, and then he's saying that he was not attached to Louisa at all. He didn't realize that everybody else thought he was. He says that he had not cared, could not care for Louisa. Um, and though he did not realize at the time how he was comparing Louisa to Anne and finding her wanting. And he says that this was the attempts of angry pride that had made him like even start trying to attach himself to Louisa. It was, you know, the way he's explaining it, he was doing it to try and make Anne jealous, which worked. Anne was very, very jealous, but, um, it was not a kind thought from him either. Um... And he says that through that, he said Louisa could so ill bear a comparison between herself and, and Anne, or the perfect unrivaled hold it possessed over his own, of the mind that had that power over him, which was Anne's. Um, and there he had learned to distinguish between the steadiness of principle and the obstinacy of self-will, between the darings of heedlessness and the resolution of a collected mind. Um... From that point, that period, his penance had become severe. And so he had just figured out, he said he had no sooner been free from the horror and remorse attending the first few days of Louise's accident, no sooner begun to feel himself alive again than he had begun to feel himself, though alive, not at liberty. So he's seeing that, saying that after Anne had left Lyme after the Louise's accident, he comes to realize through the Harvilles that um, they all basically assumed he was engaged to Louise. Everybody thinks he is. Um, he says, I was no longer at my own disposal. I was hers if in honor if she wished it. Um, and so he feels honor bound to be attached to Louisa because everybody thinks he is. And that, that's not just that the Harvilles think he is. He's thinking that because the Harvilles have assumed that 
that Louisa may have assumed that, that her family may have assumed that. And in such a situation, it would be completely, you know, against his honor, his code of honor to then desert her to have like, you know, it'd be, it's a bad thing to lead a woman on and, you know, have her and her whole family think that you're going to marry her and then not do it. Right. That's completely against the code of honor. Some, not something that Harville or Harville that Wentworth would do. And so he feels like he has to wait around and see what Louisa wants, because if Louisa wants to marry him, then he is, he feels honor bound to do so. He says, I had been grossly wrong and must abide by the consequences. So he feels like his own actions in flirting with Louisa were leading her on. And even though now he's explaining that he was only doing it because he was angry at Anne and was trying to like show off, make Anne jealous. You know, we know that that's why he was doing it, but he still, you know, did it and has to face the consequences of that, which is that he needed to make himself available to Louisa if that's what she wanted. Um, so he felt bad about that. So he, but he decided he was going to leave Lyme for now and wait her complete recovery elsewhere. He says he would gladly weaken by any fair means, whatever feelings or speculations concerning him might exist. And he went therefore to his brothers, meaning after a while to return to Kellynch and act as circumstances might require. So he plans that he's, you know, not going to keep courting her, not going to increase any sort of love between them or love on her side, attachment on her side. So he's leaving her to recover. And when she's fully recovered, his plan is to go back to Kellynch and see what the situation is then to decide whether he needs to marry her or not. But in the meantime, um, she obviously ends up getting married or getting engaged to Bennick. So then he's off the hook. Um, but while he's with his brother, Edward, he says that um, Edward, partic- he inquired after you very particularly, asked even if you were personally altered, little suspecting that to my eye, you never could alter. Um, and Anne smiled and let it pass. So I, what she's thinking of is that when they first ran into each other again, her sister, <laughs> Mary Musgrove had told her right away that, um, that Captain Wentworth had said he, she had changed that Anne had changed so much. He would not have recognized her um, or something along those lines. But he said something along those, like that he is, she's so altered. Um, and it really hurt her at the time. And so now she, he's saying that she could never alter. So what, I don't know how we read this is either that he actually has changed his mind that he did think that she'd altered and now he doesn't or whether he was just being angry and rude in the past and he didn't actually think that. But the way Anne is taking it, I think is the reading of that. He did actually think that at the time and he has changed his mind since then. Cause she says it is too, was too pleasing a blunder for a reproach. It is something for a woman to be assured in her eight and 20th year that she has not lost one charm of earlier youth. But the value of such homage was inexpressibly increased to Anne by comparing it with former words and feeling it to be the result, not the cause of a revival of his warm attachment. So she's taking it as that because he now, you know, has, has reconnected with feeling warm towards her and having these warm feelings about Anne and everything that's going on, 
that they are in love again. It's his love for her is what making what's making him think that she's pretty again. Um, not that she actually has changed physically or anything. It's that his his love is kind of giving him these rose colored glasses that make her look prettier than she is, and she so she likes that it's the result, not the cause of his warm at- attachment. Meaning that she likes that it took him like getting to know her again and her her thoughts and her you know their love for each other being the cause of him wanting to attach again not just her beauty overwhelming him or anything she thinks that's a good thing that it's you know the inner light that is bringing him back to her then they get back to the idea of louisa you know him finding out that louisa was engaged to bennick and he says that ended the worst of my state for now i could at least put myself in the way of happiness i could exert myself i could do something but to be waiting so long in an action and waiting only for evil had been dreadful. And so as soon as he finds out that Louisa is engaged to Bennick, he determines he's going to immediately go to Bath. And feeling like he had to figure that out. And then he says that he, you know, retalks about the idea that he was um, jealous, jealous of Mr. Elliot. Saying that what made him stiffen up and everything was mr elliot's Elliot's appearing appearance and tearing her away and what are two subsequent moments marked by returning hope or increasing despondence were dwelt with with energy he says he's talking he's you know is watching her there in that family group and thinking that everybody in her family including lady russell and everybody would want her to marry mr elliot over marrying captain wentworth that they would all be pushing for that and the influence on it and everything that they would try to influence you to do that. And it was making him mad. Um, and so Anne replies that you should have distinguished. You should not have suspected me. Now the case is so different and my age so different. If I was wrong in yielding to persuasion once, remember that it was to persuasion exerted on the side of safety, not of risk. When I yielded, I thought it was to duty, but no duty could be called an aid here and marrying a man indifferent to me, all risk would have been incurred. And all duty violated. And he says, maybe I should have thought of that. But I could think of you only as one who had yielded, who had given me up, who had been influenced by anyone rather than me. I saw you with the very person who had guided you in that year of misery. I had no reason to believe her of less authority now. The force of habit was to be added. And she says, well, my manner to you should have spared you much or all of this. And he says, oh, yeah, your manner would be the only ease of all of this. And he says that he was he left with the determination to see her again. His spirits rallied and he had more motive even now to remain in Bath. So he was still even after that weird sort of whatever happened at the theater, still determined to stay and see it through and whatnot. And then we kind of end with their real conversation. It just says that they are, um, they have, Anne goes home again and she's happier than she's ever been and happier than anyone in that house could have conceived. Um, and so she has to go be by herself for a little bit to kind of get herself under control again. And then it's the evening. And the party's there, and even though this is something that Anne would not normally be all that excited about, Anne had never found an evening shorter. 
Um, it was but a card party. It was a mixture of those who had never met before and those who had met too often. A commonplace business, too numerous for intimacy, too small for variety. But Anne had never found an evening shorter. Glowing and lovely in sensibility and happiness. So she's just, her happiness in the situation is just overflowing. That sensibility is just feelings. Um, and she had cheerful or foreboding feelings for every creature in the room. Mr. Elliot was there. She avoided but could not, or she avoided but could pity him. The Wallaces, she had amusement in understanding them. Lady Dalrymple and Mrs. Carteret, they would soon be innocuous cousins to her. She cared not for Mrs. Clay and had nothing to blush for in the public manners of her father and sister. And she's going through everybody who's at the party. The Musgroves, she was happy there with the Musgroves. There was the happy chat of perfect ease with Captain Harville, the kind-hearted intercourse of brother and sister. And with Lady Russell, attempts at conversations which had a, which a delicious consciousness cut short. With Admiral and Mrs. Croft, everything of peculiar cordiality and fervent interest, which the same consciousness sought to conceal, and with Captain Wentworth, some moments of communications continually occurring, and always the hope of more, and always the knowledge of his being there. Um, so in one of the meetings where they're talking, she says, I have been thinking over the past and trying impartially to judge the right and wrong. I mean with regard to myself, and I must believe that I was right, much as I suffered from it, that I was perfectly right in being guided by the friend whom you will love better than, that, than you do now. To me, she was in the place of a parent. She, com she goes on with saying that, like, I don't think necessarily it was the best. I'm not saying she didn't err in her advice. Um, it's not the advice I would give, but it's the type of advice where the good or bad is only as the event decides, meaning what happens afterwards. Um, and for myself, I certainly wouldn't give that advice, but I mean it was right in submitting to her, and that I, if I had done otherwise, I should have suffered more in continuing the engagement than I did in giving it up, because I should have suffered from in my conscience. I have now, as far as such a sentiment is allowable in human nature, nothing to reproach myself with. And if I mistake not, a strong sense of duty is no bad part of a woman's portion. So she's basically saying that while she doesn't quite agree with the advice Lady Russell gave, and it's not the advice she would give herself, she understands why it was given, and she said before that she gave in to persuasion on the side of safety. So I think she, and then with that conversation before that we had with um, Mrs. Musgrove and Mrs. Croft talking about the bad, how bad long engagements are, I think Anne is coming to this conclusion that while it's... While it hurt her and while it didn't work, it was not now looking back the best advice in her specific case, they wouldn't have known that at the time. And so it was still decent advice to say that she shouldn't get engaged to this man who she has no idea when he'll have the money to be able to marry her, when he'll have the situation to be able to marry her, um, and just lock herself into this long engagement with a man who is not considered acceptable by her family was not... A good idea. And I don't know that I agree with Anne, but I do think in the time period it is a very sensible thing to think. It is a very sensible idea. Um, and I think she is just kind of coming to peace with the past. And also I think coming to peace with Lady Russell. We're trying to sort of give Lady Russell a pass here, I think. Because again, this whole book, I... 
have made myself clear, I believe, that I don't like Lady Russell. I don't think that she has been a good friend to Anne. I think she's proven over and over again that she doesn't really care about Anne's feelings. Um, she just wants Anne to do what Lady Russell thinks is the best thing for Anne to do. Um, she doesn't really seem to understand Anne at all. Um, or like I said, care about what her actual feelings on a situation are. Over and over again, she has shown that where, you know, the first one we've got is when she said not to marry Captain Wentworth or not to be engaged to him. When she didn't care that Anne really didn't want to go to Bath. She's like, I know better than you. It doesn't matter. You'll be fine. When she wants her to marry Charles Musgrove like without being in love with him. Um, like, again and again, she just doesn't seem to care what Anne's feelings on the subject are. So I really don't like her. But I think that Anne here is sort of saying that the advice she got from Lady Russell and being talked out of the engagement is completely acceptable and forgivable and that Lady Russell was not really in the wrong for having done that, which I don't completely agree with, but I get where Anne's coming from. And I think Anne is also just sort of rationalizing not being angry at Lady Russell, who is really her only sort of pseudo family member that she has a close relationship with. So I get the sort of mental gymnastics she's going through to try and keep Lady Russell in her life and not be mad at Lady Russell. I mean, fair enough, but I still don't like Lady Russell. <laughs> um, and so Captain Wentworth says basically that he's not, you know, not ready to forgive Lady Russell yet, but there are hopes of her being forgiven in time. I trust to being in charity with her soon. And then he says he's got an interesting thought here saying this is something that Anne had brought up before that she had expected him to begin in contact with her almost again once they once he had the money in the position to marry her. And that's where he says that I have been thinking over the past and a question has suggested itself whether there may not have been more been one person more my enemy than any other than yeah, enemy even than that lady, my own self. Tell me if when I returned to England in the year eight with a few thousand pounds and was posted unto Laconia, if I had then written to you, would you have answered my letter? Would you, in short, have renewed the engagement then? Would I? was all her answer, but the accent was decisive enough. Good God, he cried, you would. It is not that I did not think it or desire it, as what could alone crown all my other success. But I was proud, too proud to ask again. I did not understand you. I shut my eyes and would not understand you or do you justice. This is a recollection which ought to make me forgive everyone sooner than myself. Six years of separation and suffering might have been spared. It is a sort of pain, too, which is new to me. I have been used to the gratification of believing myself to earn every blessing that I enjoyed. I have valued myself on honorable toils and just rewards. Like other great men under reserves, under reverses, he added with a smile, I must endeavor to subdue my mind to my fortune. I must learn to brook being happier than I deserve. And that is the end of the chapter. So I think that ending there is that Captain Wentworth is also agreeing with Anne that he's not going to hold a grudge on Lady Russell for her advice all those years ago and what happened and taking some blame onto himself with the idea that he could have reached out to Anne again, gotten back in contact um, which is something that Anne had thought about in the past that she had been wishing and hoping that he would once he had made his fortune come back to her. And, you know, a couple of years later he had. 
And then they could have actually gotten married without a long engagement or an uncertain engagement like they were talking about in this chapter. And he didn't. And he's answering that he thought about it at the time, but he was too angry to do it. And so we're seeing some more of those flaws in Captain Wentworth of why this has gone on for so long and been so problematic. And there's only one chapter left, which I'm assuming is just going to kind of wrap everything up in a little bow, give be a bit of an epilogue sort of chapter. I would agree that this letter in this novel is, or in this chapter is super romantic. I really enjoy that they are actually talking to each other, that they had this really great connection and moment. And I really like that Captain Wentworth is owning up to his own mistakes and his own, you know, the things that he did wrong in the situation. Because I feel like for most of the book, at least from Anne's perspective, from what we're seeing of him, it seems like he was putting all the blame on Anne. The fact that she turned him down, that she said no, she broke the engagement. Like, like she was the problem that he had nothing to, nothing and no part of it. So him kind of accepting that there was something on his side that he could have done, um, that there was some culpability on his own side about the situation, about knowing what was going on and everything. I really like that he had some introspection in that sense and was like kind of looking back on his own behavior. I honestly don't like that they're both just moving on and completely forgiving Lady Russell for doing what she did because I still don't like Lady Russell and I still think that she's an... She's not that great a character from what I can tell. Um, and I really, so far in this novel, have not seen any evidence of Lady Russell caring about Anne in any real way or caring about Anne's actual feelings. She seems to care about Anne looking prestigious and seeming prestigious, but not about Anne actually being happy. And uh, that's that's unfortunate. I don't like it. So that's this chapter I'm really happy that they're getting together and I found it very romantic and fun and I'm excited to read the next chapter and get kind of a bow on the book and then we'll talk about the whole thing and uh yeah then we'll be moving on to maybe some adaptations of persuasion um or and or after that going on to probably Pride and Prejudice because I really want to read Pride and Prejudice and so that seems like a good place to go next um yeah so i will see you next week with the final chapter of persuasion and probably some closing thoughts about the book and we will go from there see you next week